friends. Welcome to the Brave Enough Podcast. Grab some coffee, sit back, or enjoy your drive, and let's get authentic, real, and into the good stuff. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut, and I'm so excited to hang out with you today, where we're going to talk about life and work and all the messy stuff in between. So get ready. In Season 2, Episode 10, Sasha interviews a very special guest, Dr. Chris Troyanos. Now here's your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut. Hey, hey, thanks for tuning in to The Brave Enough Show. It's your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut. I'm so excited for today's guest. He is a dear friend of mine and has been my mentor for over a decade, and I'm just really honored to have him on the show and to chat with you all and with him. But before I get started, I want to let you know about something that I lead twice a year, and that is the Brave Enough Masterclass. This class is specifically for professional women who feel at a place in their life where they're either stuck and they don't know which way to go, or they feel an overwhelming sense of being exhausted, burned out, and uninspired. And I can tell you that the most powerful thing about the class is the connections you make because it's in a very small group with other women and how real and authentic it is and the life-changing decisions that come out of this class. Women have literally changed jobs, changed, changed careers, changed out of unhealthy relationships. Some of them have moved across the country and made radical changes in their life. Some of them have put their health first and really started to live healthy and live their priorities. But all of them have come away with one thing, and that is power, power to be their own CEO, set healthy boundaries, and really establish a really good, healthy work-life balance. So if this interests you, please go to my website, becomebraveenough.com, because I'm starting the next class in March of 2020, and I would love for you to be a part of it. I get emails and messages every day on social media from women asking me to, if I can help them. And the Brave Enough Masterclass is really the way that I am able to do that. I select a small group of women and I just take them through 12 weeks of a curriculum online that is completely doable while doing their real life, which is so important because if you make a class too difficult or not feasible to actually do and live your life, no one will be able to finish it or do it. But I promise you the coaching that you get and the connections you make are so well worth it. So without further ado, let's get into today's show. Welcome to the Brave Enough Show. It's your host, Sasha Shilkut, and I'm really honored to have a wonderful guest on the show, Dr. Christopher Troyanos, who is a cardiac anesthesiologist and professor and chair at the Cleveland Clinic of the Anesthesiology Institute. And what that means is he's basically the most responsible anesthesiologist in the world and that he leads the largest department of anesthesiology in the world. And besides that, his busy day job, he really mentors and sponsors a lot of people. And he has sponsored me and mentored me for over a decade. So it is a true honor to have him on the show. So welcome to the show, Dr. Troyanos. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Shilkat. It's an honor for me to be here. Uh, truly, it is. I mean, I've been admiring your work uh, both through the SCA and through Brave Enough, and it's really an honor to to be on the show and share some of my thoughts and experiences uh, with you. So thank you for inviting me. Well, for those of people that are listening, a lot of physicians listen, a lot of non-physicians listen. Tell us a little bit. Give us the you know two-minute biography of Chris Troyanos. 
Sure. Well, I grew up in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, and um, I didn't venture very far away. I went to med school there. I went to college there, med school there, residency. I did venture out one year to do a cardiac fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, uh, but then came back uh, to the place I trained, which was uh, Mercy Hospital in Pittsburgh, part of UPMC system now. And then um, I took another chair job in Pittsburgh at the West Penn Allegheny Health System, and I wound up here at the Cleveland Clinic uh, almost four years ago. Uh, besides kind of my day job, uh, I'm also, I've also been very involved in the SCA, the Society of Cardiovascular Anesthesiologists, and uh, I had the great privilege and honor of serving as the SCA's president uh, for the past two years. And um, I don't know, I seem to get to be very busy with a lot of things. I'm also uh, president-elect of the National Board of Echocardiography, and I chair the American Society of Anesthesiologists uh, Committee on Economics. I uh, have three children. They're all grown. Um, I'm married to a lovely woman named Barb, and my... um, Children and they're all very successful in their own right. Uh, the oldest, uh, Rachel, is a librarian in Maryland. My son Andrew is a lawyer, assistant DA in Brooklyn, New York, and my youngest, uh, Rebecca, is uh, achieving her master's in uh, Montana and counseling. So um, I've been busy throughout the years, and um, I really and still enjoy practicing uh, cardiac anesthesiology, and I'm very privileged to do that here at the Cleveland Clinic. So you have an enormous day job. I mean, I've been to your department as a visiting professor and then came to speak to the women professional group there, and I was just floored with the size and the just the fingers that reach out from the clinic from an anesthesia standpoint, you are in charge of so many different hospitals and organizations. And I have to say that the thing that I respect the most about you now, I've known you from afar for many years, um, is that there's two things. The first thing is that you are extremely approachable and, the first time I think I met you was you helped mentor me during doing a workshop as a very junior cardiac anesthesiologist in the SCA. And I really looked up to you and I was actually really afraid to do this with you because you were, I knew you were going to be the president and you were on the board and such. And I was like, oh my gosh, how did I get partnered with this? You know, like one of the most important people in our field. And I was terrified because I had read all of your articles and, you know, you've published book chapters and books and all these things. And you were so approachable to me. And that year when I was, um, having some challenges in my own institution and really we didn't, I didn't have any mentor. I cold called you. I remember. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to ask him for like five minutes of advice. And you talked with me for over 30 minutes and gave me your time and really helped me. And so I just appreciate, I want our listeners to know that, you know, on one hand, you're this extremely, um, busy and extremely important person in medicine. And I say that, you know, very honestly, but at the other side of you, you're so approachable. And I know that that's true for people that work with you day in and day out, because I've heard that about you. So 
what is, give us some pearls. Like how have you been in medicine? Cause there's so many people that are burned out and there's so many people that I think are mid career that are listening and going, I don't know if I want to go to the next level. I don't see a lot of happy people leading in medicine, but you are so one of those people. Like you always have a smile on your face. I've been at board meetings with you for 10 hours where we have heated discussions and you still are smiling at the coffee, you know, break. <laughs> how, give us some tips. Like how are you, so important and so busy, and yet you still are very authentic and real and approachable. Uh, I have to laugh. I, I, I don't know. I don't feel that important. I guess that's <laughs> the, the first thing. Uh, I, do, I truly don't. I feel like I'm, I'm here to serve. I want to make things better, uh, number one, for our patients, and uh, equally important, make things better for the people who work here. And, and that's my role, and I I truly like like to live by the uh, the servant leadership type of mentality, and in doing so, uh, like I said, I'm I'm here to serve. I'm not here to feel important or be important. Uh, I view my role as having a great responsibility in order to fulfill uh, those goals of making this a very safe place for our patients. And for our providers to have the equipment they need, the time off they need, the compensation they need to be successful in their own right, because if you have a happy doctor, chances are you're going to have uh, healthy and, and good outcomes and successful patients. So I, I don't know. I feel very humble. Um, again, I don't feel very important, but I'm, I'm here to serve. And if I can do that, then then I feel like I've fulfilled my mission. And the other thing is not sweating the small stuff. You know, a lot of people get upset over little things and you have to keep things in perspective of what's really important and what's not. And the things that are small, just, just let them go. Um, not, not sweat over them, not to make a big deal out of them. And then, and at the end of the day, I, somebody once told me that it takes less energy to smile than it does to frown. And so I don't, I'm so busy. I don't have a lot of uh, expendable energy. So I'd rather save my energy with a smile rather than a frown. You know, that is so funny. Cause that's one of my mantras too. When I, um, as you know, I'm very active on social media and with that comes a lot of, it can come a lot of negativity. And I just choose at the end of the day to just ignore that because it is, it is, it's just, it takes just as much energy to send out a positive message as it does to send out a negative message. <laughs> I'm like, yes. why would you not yes. choose the positive message? I, I don't know. I, I think that's what that's, is that's so very important. True. I think, yes. But as uh, humans, I think we tend to focus a lot of the negative and, um, I consciously try to, when things are going well to celebrate those times, uh, we often just take them for granted as they, they should happen, but they don't. And so as human beings, you know, we really need to work, I think, at celebrating when, when things are going well and when people do little things well. I love that. And I can see that in your newsletter and your, that, that you all send out from your department, which is like, it's massive because there's so many people and there's so much activity and there's so many patients that you're caring for. I love how positive it is and how you really reflect on all of the growth and all of the things that the people are doing. It's really encouraging to read that. And I think you're right. I think in medicine, especially where we are, you know, we're in the, we're in the trenches trying to do very human work. I mean, at the end of the day, what we do is, is very human 
you know, messy, complicated work. And there's no two people or two patients that are the same. And it's easy for us to sometimes focus on the the struggles or the overwhelming feelings of maybe what we didn't do well that day or what didn't go right. But at the end of the day, you know, we're doing the best we can for people and, and we're serving and so, and that alone should be celebrated. That's, that's so true. Uh, another advice I'd give to people is, you know, whatever is asked of you, just do it well. And I respect people who, who actually can say no to things. I, that's one of my weaknesses. I have trouble <laughs> saying no, but, uh, don't take anything on that's, uh, that's too much or you feel like you can't do it well. But the things that you are given, if, especially if you're young faculty or just starting out, uh, they may be asked to do something that doesn't look very prestigious or even desirable. Um, you and I grew up in the SCA when, and, and so I think you can relate to the challenges of getting people on committees and things like that. Well, when I was a young faculty, I had the same issue. I became part of the SCA's Economics and Governmental Affairs Committee. And, and why? Because I had a mentor and my mentor was chairing that committee. And so that's how I got on it. Um, at the time, I had minimal interest in economics, and even less interest in governmental affairs. So I'm like, "What am I doing on this committee?" But uh, yeah, that's not like the most. I, that's not the most like sexy or prestigious sounding committee. Exactly, exactly. So, I, but I came to realize how important economic issues were to the clinical mission that we all had, and, and wound up chairing that committee. And now, as I mentioned, I chair the ASA's economics committee. So, and it, I thought Which it's ironic huge. that my work yeah. in the establishing that SCA's salary survey was a tool that you came to use most recently in evaluating the gender influence on salaries for cardiac anesthesiologists. But but even, you know, not even on a national level, even on a local level, I think it's important uh, within your own department institution to do even the small things and small tasks to the best of your, your abilities. Because if you do those small things well, people will ask you to do more and take on more responsibilities and you'll get a taste for, for what it's like. You may like it or you may realize you don't like it, which is important for you to understand as well. So those are the kind of a couple of things that uh, I would recommend to uh, junior faculty or people starting out that are thinking about uh, leadership positions. Those are great. Those are that, that I love this advice because it's very true that to respect the no, but if you're, if you say yes, do it to the best of your ability. And I always, you know, one thing I tell faculty all the time is it's better to say, no, I, I'm not interested in doing that than to say yes, and then not do the job. It's, it's more dangerous to your reputation if you say yes to a million things, but then you fail to show up. So I always tell people, you know, as you go along your, as you kind of advance in your career, you get to be more choosy, but when you're starting out, you do kind of have to say, okay, I'll, I'll maybe do this thing. You know, like for me, I got involved in SCA in a very minor way because I wanted to be eventually in leadership. So I knew that doing this one thing well, that may, I, you know, I don't know. I remember I gave talks about stuff that I didn't like, I wasn't like in love with, but I did it well because I wanted to eventually 
get on the program committee and, and do some other leadership within the society. And so I always tell people it's better to say no if you know that you're not going to be able to do it or you're just not going to show up because it's more harmful to your reputation to say yes and then, you know, fail to do the job. Um, That's true. But as leaders, too, if someone says no, we have to respect that and go back to them when mm -hmm. there is another opportunity. And in other words, don't write them off completely um, uh, for saying no, but to go back to them and maybe uh, try to understand why and what's going on in their lives at that time and, and give them another chance. Now, if people keep saying no after the, you know, fifth sixth, tenth time, then you kind of get the message. But um, I think we should respect the no and uh, give people another chance. I love that you said that because so many times I hear this from women I coach who are really afraid of saying no because they think they're, they're never going to be asked again. And maybe that's happened to them in the past. And I also have heard, you know, male leaders, when I suggest some women, they'll say, well, we, we asked her once and she said no. And I'm like, ask her again, because maybe she was at a point in her life where she couldn't take that on. But one thing that I have really I respect so much about you is the fact that you've done that for me. You know, you asked me once to serve on a board and it was something I really wanted to do, but I had already committed to other travel and, and commitments and I couldn't do it. And I thought, Oh gosh, is this like, this is the end of our, our mentorship. This is the end. Like in my mind, you know, I was like, he's never going to ask me to do anything again. But sure enough, within a year, you asked me to come give a talk or something else. And I thought, okay, he, he's, you know, that was kind of something I thought in my own, in my own mind. So what would you say to women who, who are specifically that are afraid of saying no to maybe their leaders because they are afraid that they're never going to get asked again? Well, the ironic thing about this is that I don't remember you saying no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> so that, I mean, that tells you something yeah. right there because you've come back and said yes to so many things and, you know, done an incredible job at whatever is handed to you. But I think it's important to let the person know why. And I think if they understand why you said no, then that gives them insight. You know, maybe you're going through a rough time with a parent or something like that. And then, uh, you know, that issue may not exist uh, six months from now or a year from now. And so right. if the person who asks you understands the why and then realizes when that why is maybe not an issue anymore, then they know to ask you again at, at that point in time. So I think the why is very important um, and to, to be open and honest uh, with, with someone. And, and a lot of times you can say, look, thank you for asking me. I, I'm really honored. I want to do it well, uh, but I don't feel I can do it well at this time. And that's the key is to say, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in doing these things, but I want to do it well and um, this isn't the right time. So one of the things I also wanted to talk about with you is that there have been several things that I have asked you if we could investigate as far as gender or bias within our society or within our specialty and asked you for your support. And you have never brushed me off or said, no, you've always said, well, let's talk about this. Tell me more. And you're very approachable when it comes to gender issues. And as someone who speaks all over the country on gender issues, I can tell you that your response is not the norm. <laughs> 
So sometimes I get leaders like yourself who are like, oh, that's really interesting. I've never thought about adding that data field or doing that study or tell me more, which is your approach is always like, yeah, let's talk about this. Tell me more. Um, but sometimes I, I hear, you know, well, we don't have bias. We don't have bias in our department. And then I'll talk to the junior faculty or the women, like say I'm a visiting professor and I'm doing one-on-ones or meeting with groups and they're, you know, they're expressing frustration or they're expressing obstacles or challenges or, or biases. And I know in your department, you have some phenomenal women faculty that came to you and said, Hey, we want to start uh, a women's uh, group and we want to start some professional development and programming for women. And they, you, you know, made that happen for them. So to those that are listening, that are leaders, how do you, as a male leader, in your, who you lead both men and women in your department, hundreds of, of both. How, how do you, what would you say to the leaders out there that may have some fear or angst? Because it is an uncomfortable conversation. It can be, you know, not the most fun thing to talk about in medicine or in any profession. How, what's your approach to that? Well, I, I really have to thank you for opening my eyes, especially within the SCI. I remember you coming up to me and you said, how many of our speakers are male versus female? And I didn't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then you said, well, how many members uh, in our society are male and female? I said, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but that's a that's a good question, and you would think that our membership should reflect the speakers and moderators that we have. But um, it, yeah, so you opened my eyes to that. So I came to realize that we have unconscious bias, and that we need to be made aware of that. Uh, but we can't be aware of it unless we have the data. So you <laughs> thankfully counted up every single speaker and <laughs> tried to identify how many, you know, were of each. And, you know, that really opened up our eyes. And what really struck me is that when you would put a program or a panel together, you would naturally go to someone who you've heard before. And it mm-hmm. could have been a male without thinking of mm-hmm. other people. And that's the key is to, okay, you might think of the first person that comes to your mind, but it's important to think of other people who might do an equally good job at whatever it is that we're asking them to do. So I think it's important to think of others. uh, And if it it may be just for the simple task of giving someone else uh, a chance, but unconscious bias is something that uh, we need to be made uh, aware of. I attended a class here at the Cleveland Clinic on unconscious bias, and I went in there thinking, I don't have any bias. I'm a very fair person. And uh, we we were presented with a CV and a a little resume about someone who was a master at solving computer problems. And, but they weren't uh, very good at working with other people. And I thought, there's no way I'd hire this type of person. Um, but the person next to me who was a different line of work, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an anesthesiologist, so I have to kind of reconcile people working together all the time because you can't give anesthesia kind of in a vacuum. Uh, but this other person, their main issue, they really relied on their computer and their computer working well. So when they looked at this resume and they saw that this person was a master at fixing computer problems, they didn't really care that this person didn't get along with others. And I was astonished that 
we would have different opinions about hiring this person. And then it, it kind of dawned on me that, well, I do have biases. Um, sometimes they may be good. So for me, getting along with others in an operative environment is very important. And, and so I'm biased, but this was, became conscious to me then. Mm-hmm. And then once you know you have a bias, then you can kind of decide if this is okay or not. For hiring anesthesiologists, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good bias to have. But for other things, it, it you know, may not be. Um, so we need to be aware of gender, races, uh, all, all kinds of things in choosing, choosing leaders. Uh, the other thing I think it's important to you know, uh, support people who, who might be thinking about it and maybe give them a, a lower role or a lesser role and seeing how they do, both for themselves to develop and, and then later on give them kind of more stretch goals or stretch assignments so they can develop and learn on their own because that's really the way we learn is by, is by doing. You can read a lot about leadership, but it's learning from your mistakes and uh, going on from there that I think is really most beneficial. I love that because you have to, I always tell people that if you actually read about the science of confidence, you know, sometimes I think people think that you're just born with a certain level of confidence, but confidence actually comes from taking action and you can't take action in your job or your leadership roles or, or your organization or your home or whatever it is without having some net to fail, like some margin to fail. And that's why people gain, how people gain confidence is when they're, they feel that they have support that they're going to do their best, but if they mess up, they're going to be like gently kind of refocused or they're going to be able to learn from it, admit their failure, you know, share their failure. And I think that that's actually plays into bias because I think that when, I, I know for a fact that I've talked to several women who are like, well, I don't, I don't want to take that on because I'm going to be judged. I'm going to, I'm going to have to do a perfect job if it's going to be successful. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of data that shows that we do judge more harshly errors that are done by women versus men in the workplace, that women suffer more on evaluations and even salary and such if they make a mistake or even leaders do. And I think that, it's so important that we give people the ability to mess up, so to speak, um, and, and, and start small, obviously, but to learn from their mistakes. And because that's what really grows your confidence. You know, when, when I know that I can give a, a talk, I've been given a talk on a big, you know, platform. And I know that there's going to be people out there supporting me, even if I may flub up, you know, three minutes of the, of the talk or five minutes of the talk, but I'm given myself and other people give, show me grace in that, that only builds my confidence. But if I'm totally afraid of messing up and I'm going to say, no way, no way am I giving that talk. I'm not stepping up on that platform. Then that's the loss of an opportunity to build confidence. So I think it's really what you're talking about is so valuable because I think that we need to support people on the small scale so that they can actually grow to be on the big scale, both men and women. And one of the other things I wanted to touch on with you was the more than one campaign. So I had started this more than one campaign after listening to a lot of leaders around the country who would come up to me after my gender equity talks and say, and most of them were men. Um, by and far, because most of our leaders in medicine are men, just statistically. And they would say, you know, Sasha, I really, really want to help 
fix some of the gender issues in my department? What is a single action step I can do? And I appreciated their concern. I appreciated how many men out there and our male leaders actually want to help. And so I thought, okay, you know, what is one action item I can give them? And so I just started with, I would tell them, you know, just look around, look around where decisions are being made and make sure there's more than one woman. So I asked you to be part of the campaign and as, as well as some other male leaders. And I was really honored that you said yes and tweeted about it and took pictures and spread the message. But what does more than one mean to you? So, as I mentioned earlier, I'm the father of three wonderful children, two of which are, are women. And so it's important for me to know that their future, they have, they're going to have the right opportunities to succeed and get uh, promoted. But what really had a great impact on me was when I was first married. I was a young re- resident making about 22000 a year, and my wife was an electrical engineer making probably more than double that I was making. And... I remember going to a furniture store and the salesperson was only talking to me and not paying much attention to my wife. And I, I'm like, wait a minute, she's the reason we can buy this furniture is because she's making double my income. <laughs> it seemed minor, but that really impacted me. I thought this, this isn't right. And so now, you know, I'm a leader of a approximately 950 people in my institute. And I really want to promote a culture that allows everyone to have a chance to be a leader and become promoted. Nothing gives me greater satisfaction than to see people I've mentored succeed and and, uh, become fair and effective leaders themselves. So I really thank you for, you know, bringing this to light uh, because I think it's just like counting the number of speakers on our SCA program. We have to just pause and think, you know, have we thought about everybody uh, that we could for this position? And and if there's only one woman or one person of color or a certain ethnicity, we got to ask ourselves, why is that? Mm -hmm. Is that? our fault or is it because we're not making it easy enough uh, for people to step up and show an interest so i think we have leaders have to set that culture to know that uh, people can step up no matter who you are so uh, i think that initiative that you started really gives us the opportunity to kind of pause and say hey wait a minute here have we thought about everybody for this or that uh, leadership position so kind of resonates me personally because of my my daughters and my wife, but um, I think uh, we need to... The other thing, we may be missing the opportunity to have a great leader if we're not opening up our eyes to all the people who might be able to serve in that capacity. Oh, I love that. Yeah. But I think also we shouldn't choose a woman if they are not uh, deserving of that particular job. I don't think we do a service to anybody. Uh, in fact, I think if if we you know ask the right woman to be involved and she's successful, that speaks volumes as t- to the success going into the future. Mm-hmm. But if you pick someone who isn't qualified, you just step back and you try to find what you can do to help them develop in the areas that they need. Uh, to be suitable for the next uh, position. And then you're setting them up for success uh, as opposed to setting them up for failure. So, and then they also know that, 
they're being picked because of their qualities, not just because of their gender. And so I think it gives more credibility to them getting the next leadership position when you choose the person based on their qualities, but be open to all the candidates who could potentially serve. I I cannot agree more. And I, I really love your approach to it and how it's very simple and yet so powerful to ask questions. Why do we only have one candidate that's a woman or a person of color? Or why do we, you know, why is that? Is it something we're doing? Is it something the culture's doing? And what can we do better to make everyone feel that they have an opportunity to step up to the plate? These are such simple yet really powerful questions that change our perceptions and our unconscious and conscious bias when we're sitting around those tables and making those decisions. So I want to be respectful of your time because you have a thousand people that you're trying to help today, which is no lie. (laughs) So I really want to, I really want to be respectful of your time. You and I could sit and chat about these things for hours as we often do when we get together for dinner at meetings and such. And I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today and being so open and transparent about your leadership styles and pearls for those people listening that really want to step into a leadership position. Um, And thank you so much for all you've done for me personally in my career. And I'm excited that I know that there's more time that we will be leading and working together in the future. So thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you for the opportunity and really thanks. Thanks for all you do in making our society, our culture, our um, leaders in all of healthcare. uh, Really, you're so impactful on so many people um, and uh, that that's a greater impact than any individual patient. And that's the way I look at my role, too, as the clinic is I can impact other patients whom I may never meet uh, because of, you know, making things better for the people who work here. So thank you for the opportunity and the honor and uh, great chatting with you. (laughs) Thanks again. And thanks to everyone for joining us today. And as always, live brave. This has been an HSG production.